Hey, everybody. Courtney and I are taking a short break, but while we're away, we hope you'll enjoy this reprise of one of our favorite episodes. Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Well, Courtney, glad to be back with you as we kick off something special. That's right. We're back. These three next episodes will be our criminal justice trilogy and like all trilogies it's going to be great yes there is so much to explore on this topic one episode really isn't enough we'll start today with policing then do an episode on the courts and then a final one on prisons and um, we've got a lot of statistics to cite and these are going to come from Radley Balco's June 2020 Washington Post story on systemic racism in the criminal justice system. He reviewed 155 studies and found 145 confirming negative disparities in the way black African Americans are treated in the American judicial system. Wow, 145 out of 155, that's a large number. Indeed it is. So he did his homework and that research bears it out. Now, I know something about you, my dear niece. You like origin stories, don't you? I do. That's the perfect way to start any kind of superhero or hero journey is a good origin story. Well, before we get too deeply into our topic today, let's delve into the origins of the modern police force. And I want to start with a pledge. Listen carefully. I, patroller's name, do swear that I will, as searcher for guns, swords, and other weapons among the slaves in my district, faithfully and as privately as I can discharge the trust reposed in me as the law directs to the best of my power, so help me God. That is the Slave Patroller's Oath in North Carolina, written in 1828. And that's also the preamble to Chelsea Hansen's 2019 article on slave patrols. Wow, I've only been familiar with the Green Lantern Oath, and trust me, it's a lot less scary than that one. But because the American South relied almost exclusively on slave labor, white Southerners lived in near constant fear of slave rebellions disrupting this economic status quo. So these patrols were one of the earliest and most prolific form of early policing in the South. They had the express responsibility of being straightforward in controlling the movements and behaviors of enslaved populations. Now, according to historian Gary Potter, slave patrols serve three main functions. One, 
to chase down, apprehend, and return to their owners runaway slaves. Two, to provide a form of organized terror to deter slave revolts. And three, to maintain a form of discipline for slave workers who were subject to summary justice outside the law. And of course, summary justice meant that slaves could be um, under judicial expectations that didn't really go through the courts. Slave patrols beat and terrorized slaves and were legally compelled to do so by local authorities. In this sense, it was considered a civic duty. So you weren't a good citizen if you didn't find yourself on a slave patrol. Mm -hmm. One that in some areas could result in a fine if avoided. So even if you wanted nothing to do with it, you were kind of press ganged into doing it. In others, patrollers received financial compensation for their work. So it was a good job if you can get it and did not mind terrorizing enslaved people. Mm -hmm. Typically, slave patrol routines, including enforcing curfews, checking travelers for permission passes, and catching those assembling without permission and preventing any form of organized resistance. Now, the process of how we, one became a patroller differed throughout the colonies. So some governments ordered local militias to select patrollers from their rosters of white men in the region within a certain age range. In many areas, patrols were made up of lower class and wealthy landowning white men alike. And other areas, they just pulled names from list of local landowners. But interestingly, get this, Courtney, this really got me. In 18th century South Carolina, landowning white women were included in the potential list of names. Now, if they were called to duty, they were given the option to identify a male substitute to patrol in their place. Wow, that's a really twisted form of feminism. <laughs> First formed in 1704 in South Carolina, patrols lasted over 150 years. During the Civil War, however, just because the patrols lost their lawful status did not mean they, their influence died out in 1865. Historian Sally Hayden argues that there are distinct parallels between the legal slave patrols before the war and the extra legal terrorization tactics used by vigilante groups during the Reconstruction, most notoriously the Ku Klux Klan. Ooh, wow, that's an interesting connection. Well, after the Civil War, Southern police departments often carried over aspects of those slave patrols. These included systematic surveillance, the enforcement of curfews, and even notions of who could become a police officer. So basically, even this, after the Civil War was over and there were no slaves, those Southern police departments kept acting like they were slave patrols. Um, Courtney, I think the story you're about to tell us describes how some of the vestiges of these slave patrols actually showed up in mid-20th century policing. I do. I have a story that is set within the backdrop of the Motor City, a.k.a. Detroit, during the riots of 1967. But during these five days of civil unrest, one of the most heinous examples of unchecked police power, brutality, and outright murder 
would befall a set of teens and young adults, and it would become to be known as the Algiers Motel Incident. Hmm. Detroit in the 1960s was a mixture of music, racial unrest, deindustrialization, neighborhoods being abandoned by what we learned was called white flight from the fear of desegregating schools and other jobs, along with the over-policing of Black neighborhoods. Mix that in with the Vietnam War, it made it right for what was about to play out. Hmm. Now, a little bit about the Detroit Police Department. Since the end of the Civil War, the Detroit Police Department itself purposely had within its organization exclusively white vice squads with the sole purpose of policing black people much like the slave patrols that we talked about previously Mm -hmm. they often raided black social clubs because they knew that these social clubs were operating without a license which was illegal now you could say well why don't the black citizens just go to clubs with the license those clubs did not allow black tra- patrons and black club owners who wanted licenses were often denied. So if you wanted to go out, you ran the risk of getting arrested. And if you owned a club, you ran the risk of getting arrested and your business shut down. Wow. So trying to have a good time was pretty hard in Detroit if you were black. Uh, very much so. Now, on July 23rd, 1967, an after-hours bar known as the Blind Pig was filled with people from the neighborhood celebrating the return of two soldiers from Vietnam. And right on cue, the vice squad was called to the bar to shut down the party, an act that caused the crowd to become angry. Somebody threw a brick, and it might as well have been a match, because that's what sparked the 1967 civil unrest. Residents were already in the streets trying to escape the heat wave, but now they were raging against the racist system that seemed to be constantly raging against them. President Lyndon B. Johnson called in the National Guard, and even the most hardened journalists compared the city streets of Detroit in 1967 to wartime Vietnam. To this day, these five days of civil unrest would be the worst this country has ever seen leaving millions left in damages, hundreds of people displaced and, home, and homeless, several hundred arrests, and 43 deaths. I was a kid at the time, and I remember watching that on TV. Wow. And it looks like history is repeating itself. Mm-hmm. But back to those 43 deaths. Three of those are the ones I'm going to specifically zero in, in on. Those three young men and those with them will be the ones to experience what happened at the Algiers Motel. Their names were Carl Cooper, who was 17, Fred Temple, who was 18, and Aubrey Pollard, who was 26. Now, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything about the Algiers Motel. This was not luxury accommodations. It was in a shady neighborhood known for prostitution, drugs, crime, and transient people transitioning from permanent to less stable housing. But regardless of the motel's reputation and who was there that night, what happened was unconscionable. On July 25th, a National Guardsman by the name of Ted Thomas reported hearing shots coming from the motel. 
This prompted the overzealous Detroit Police Department to radio that the National Guard was under heavy sniper fire at the Algiers Motel and the annex behind it. Testimony later revealed that the shots had actually just come from Carl Cooper and the other teens playing around with a track and field starter pistol that only had blanks. Hmm. They had been listening to music and found a gun, a gun with blanks. Now, upon hearing the shots, both state, local, and the National Guard, state police, local police, and the National Guard rushed into the motel annex expecting a firefight, finding nothing. What they did find, however, was Carl Cooper, the youngest of the group. Now, these police officers included Robert Pally, David Senek, and Ronald August. Carl Cooper was shot coming down the steps, just wanting to know what the noise was in the lobby. Police would testify that he had been lying in wait in one of the motel rooms, ready to kill the officers, and they had to kill him in self-defense. He was just a teenager, and nobody would ever be charged for Carl Cooper's murder. After finding no sniper, the state police and National Guard left, leaving only the Detroit police officers and the remaining guests in the hotel. As Carl Cooper lay dying, the police officers forced the remaining guests, who included Larry Reed, who was 18, and the lead singer of the soul group, The Fabulous Dramatics, Michael Clark, Lee Forsyth, a Vietnam veteran by the name of Robert Green, Aubrey Pollard, and Fred Temple, along with two women, into the adjoining hallway. Witnesses interviewed said the police continuously hurled insults, racial slurs, accused the men of being pimps and the women of being sex workers. They also terrorized the women by making them strip naked along with the men and forcing everyone to stand spread equal against the wall. Eventually, a black security guard, Melvin Misdukes, came in uh, to witness the harrowing scene. Now, accounts vary to see it as if, you know, was he innocent? Was he forced to stay? Many questions around him. But what I can tell you is he did walk up on a very scary scene. And what happened next will shock you. Courtney, I'm telling you, this all sounds pretty horrible. I need a break. So let's take a break. And when we return, we'll hear the end of that story. Well, we're back, and I'm anxious to hear how this story ends. But before you finish, Courtney, I want to remind our listeners that if they want to take a deeper dive into understanding systemic racism in America, they can go to our website, www.whyaretheysoangry.com, for more information. And also, they can take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. Also, if you like this episode, leave your comments and give us a five-star rating. So... Back to the story, Courtney. Well, we're returning back to the Algiers Motel. And unfortunately, the murders did not end with Carl Cooper's death. The next person to die was Robert, was Aubrey Pollard, 26. He was shot by Officer Ronald August. August had taken him into a separate room. Actually, each black male was taken into a separate room. He claimed that Pollard had attacked him and he killed him in self-defense. Officer Robert Pally told a similar story regarding the death of Fred Temple, who was 18. 
Eyewitnesses, however, claim that the officer systematically terrorized all the black men in their custody by forcing them to lie on the ground where they fired guns at their heads, threatening to kill them. Eventually, both Temple and Pollard were killed. Now, by the morning, the police were gone, three people were dead, and no police report was filed. Before leaving, witnesses allege that the police warned them not to speak about this to anyone or else. If it wasn't for Charles Hendricks, another security guard who reported the deaths, this might have just been another unknown, unreported incident of police brutality. All four officers were brought up on charges, and all of them, as well as the security guard, were acquitted by all right jury, all white juries. After requesting changes of venue and mysteriously one of the police officers not having their Miranda rights read to them when they were arrested. So that's how it was left until author John Hershey interviewed the eyewitnesses about the account for his book, The Algiers Motel Incident, which brought attention to this horrific event in 1967. Now, I don't want you to think that the people of Detroit went silent about this event they were angry and they knew that justice wasn't served these were local teens and even one carl cooper was good friends his family was good friends with rosa parks the rosa parks oh the rosa parks of i won't give up my seat on the bus the very one now local youth organizers inspired by snick had a people's tribunal Organizer H. Rat Brown addressed a crowd of 5,000 people in Detroit and put on flyers. The only way to see justice done is to watch accurate justice administered by the citizens of the community. Witness the unbiased legal action of skilled Black attorneys. Review and watch the evidence for yourself. Now, the so courtney they had their own tribunal then around this issue mean they meaning the people of detroit the black people of detroit yes the black people of detroit filed into the church of the black madonna run by reverend albert Kleeg. over two thousand people sat in on this tribunal the jury which did include rosa parks found the officers guilty of murder and even the detroit bar association considered disbarring the lawyers who participated in the trial reverend clegg who where the, where the tribunal was held in his church wrote for the michigan chronicle it's hard to believe that a group of ordinary white men could hate ordinary black men so badly in 1970 Three of the officers and the security guard faced federal rights charges, but once again, they were all acquitted. Other than nominal, modest settlements paid out to the Temple and Pollard family, justice has truly never been served for what happened that night at the Algiers Motel. Boy, that Algiers Motel story is an it it just rattles you. I want to thank you for unearthing that shocking event. It's hard to take in such a devastating true story. That uh, story from the late 60s, 1967 and 68, was definitely a time of crisis and civil unrest involving clashes with the police. It was a tough time. So what's going on today? Well, let me rephrase that. I own a TV and I have access to the internet, so I know what's going on today. But what are the facts about 
policing today? Well, knowing the facts, that's always important. Let's go back to that Balco article that listed 155 studies about systemic racism. We'll start with a study about Minneapolis. A New York Times examination after the death of George Floyd found that while Black people make up 19% of the Minneapolis population and 9% of its police, they were on the receiving end of 58% of the city's police use of force incidents. Wow. Being stopped by a police officer is one of the most terrifying feelings many Black people can experience. The history, uh, the fear, all of that mixed in with the knowing that something completely as innocent as a traffic stop may end with them not making it out alive. That is so true. And I think a lot of folks in the Black community have stopped saying there's such a thing as a routine traffic stop because it can devolve very quickly into someone getting hurt or killed. Now, there, there was a massive study published in May 2020 of 95 million traffic stops by 56 police agencies between 2011 and 2018. And it found that while Black people were much more likely to be pulled over than whites, get this, the disparity lessens at night when police are less able to distinguish the race of the driver. Now, that's very interesting, but this just falls into what a lot of Black African Americans know as driving while Black. You didn't do anything wrong. You just happened to be driving and be Black. Yeah, maybe we should just drive at night. Now, on August 2019, a study published by the National Academy of Sciences based on police shooting databases found that between 2013 and 2018, Black men were 2.5 times more likely than white men to be killed by police, and that Black men have a 1 in 1,000 chance of dying at the hands of police. And women are no exception. Black women were 1.4 more times likely to be killed than white women. I'm not shocked. It scares me. It's not going to scare me enough to stop driving, but it's something that Black people have had to take into account. These are just the facts, but the real human experience makes it all the more terrifying. So true. Now, here's a statistic that should interest you. A 2019 survey of traffic tickets in Indianapolis and its suburbs found that in the city, Black drivers received one and a half, uh, 1.5 tickets for every white driver. However, in the suburban towns of Fishers, the disparity grew to 4.5 tickets, and in the wealthy suburb of Carmel, Black motorists received 18 tickets for every ticket issued to a white motorist. I think you have a relationship to that area, don't you, Courtney? I do. I grew up in Indianapolis and went to high school, middle school, and partially elementary school in Indianapolis. I grew up in a suburb um, much like Carmel, and I'm very familiar with those statistics. Also being told as a Black teen wanting to get their license, there are just some cities you don't drive in, and both of those were listed. Oh, boy. I'll tell you, we have to cover ourselves wherever we go. I, I, you know, I understand at one time you were even stopped while you were driving uh, a convertible in that area. 
I was. It wasn't technically that area, but it was an area much like it. It was my first convertible. I'm a convertible driver, much like my mother. And all of a sudden, I was stopped. Three police cars were behind me. I had no idea what I had done wrong. I checked the music. I wasn't lost. And as soon as I saw those three cars behind me, I instantly became terrified thinking, what could I have done? I looked around the car, I looked at the neighborhood, and I knew exactly what I had done. Mm, The old driving while black. Well, you know, when folks do get stopped by the police, black and white, um, there's a 2017 study that discussed and looked at the interactions between officers and citizens taken from footage captured by police officer body cameras, and it found, that study found that officers speak with consistently less respect toward Black versus white community members. We've seen it play out so many times on social media. We're in an age where social media, social justice, and the need to want to post everything online are all intersecting. How many of us have sat and watched a video of a Black person being stopped, a police officer talking down to them? Even if the interaction doesn't end in violence, you hold your breath, especially if you're a Black person watching the video, you find yourself holding your breath along with the other person, hoping they make it out alive. Many cases, much like Philando Castile in Minneapolis, turn deadly very quickly. So true. So true. And, you know, those interactions are, are moments when folks are walking on eggshells and we just have to keep our alertness up. Um, I want to talk a little bit about a study that the Boston University Law Review did in 2018 involving uh, misdemeanors. Now, misdemeanors, they can range uh, to all to be all types of things. Simple arrest for disorderly conduct, drug possession, simple assault, theft, vagrancy, and vandalism. And the Black arrest rate uh, of those types of, of crimes are very high. Um, it's also the Black arrest rate for prostitution is almost five times higher than the white arrest rate. And the Black arrest rate for gambling is almost 10 times higher. Also, according to a Justice Department study that came out in 2013, Black drivers are also more likely to be pulled over for alleged mechanical or equipment problems with their automobiles or for record checks. Now, in future podcasts, we're going to talk about the history of arresting Black African Americans for minor violations like these, because they really turn out to be ways that the police can get access to uh, these, these individuals. Ah, the old vagrancy arrest. Yes, if yes. If you've read read Slavery by Another Name or seen the documentary 13th or many of the books that we provide on our website as, as reading material, you'll learn quickly that these arrests are not new for minor offenses. They have their origin story just like everything else. They do indeed. They do indeed. And let's end up with um, a 2014 study by the American Civil Liberties Union. It's, it was a survey of SWAT teams across the country. And what that survey found is that this term, dynamic entry and parliamentary police tactics are disproportionately used against Black and Latino people. 
So we've all seen those procedural police shows where the SWAT team shows up at the super bad guy's house. They're heavily armed and they're wielding a battering ram for a big raid. But in reality, that study showed most of these type raids have been on people suspected of low-level drug crimes. And oftentimes, they have the wrong house. For months, people have been crying out for justice for Breonna Taylor, who did absolutely nothing. Her only crime was falling asleep in her own bed, at her own address, and her boyfriend wanting to protect her from an intruder. One of those dynamic raids were done on her house. The suspect they were looking for was already in custody. The reason why we're asking for justice for Breonna Taylor is a simple address check would have prevented her death and we would have been celebrating her birthday which just passed with her right now oh courtney that's just tragic when we hear those stories but we we hear them and all we can do is hope that we no longer have to put up with this so we've spent a lot of time seeing and saying what systemic racism looks like in policing. So let's discuss how we confront it within our personal spheres of influence. These are tragic stories. These are frightening stories, but there are ways to deal with this. First and foremost, I urge folks, when you're called for jury duty, don't shirk, don't treat it as if it's something horrible to do. Go and serve. Also, if you ever have a chance to serve on a grand jury, do it. This is where a lot of information is given about crimes and how people actually end up in the, in the criminal justice system. So serve on a jury, and if you have a chance to be on a grand jury, do it. That's right. You can get involved with organizations like Campaign Zero with its Eight Can Wait efforts and other groups that are working on this problem. And remember, voting is powerful, too. If your state votes for prosecutors and judges, be sure to participate in those elections and, and really just all elections. If your city doesn't have one, urge your city leaders to form a Citizens Review Council to review police actions. And if your city already has one, consider getting involved with it. So there, that's just a few of the things that we suggest. There are so many, many more. The important thing is don't sit on the sidelines. Even though the statistics and stories you heard today were very tragic and uh, may even cause you to be a bit uh, downtrodden to think there's nothing to do, there is something to do within your sphere of influence, so get busy. If they want to know more or they want to follow our work, where can they go? They can go on Instagram um, to our Instagram page, which is Why Are They So Angry? They can find us on Facebook, at why are they so angry they can find us at on twitter at w a t s a underscore online on twitter and on our website why are they so angry.com well you've given us a lot of ways to hear from folks out there so we're looking forward to it and we're also looking forward to having part two and three of this trilogy in the next go round Join us for the Justice Trilogy as we continue on to part two. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, 
and confront it. 